showers. The maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees in the urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. The outlook is hot with sunny periods and one or two showers in the next couple of days. More showers in the latter part of this week. Do stay tuned for Back Chat with Hugh Chiverton and Mike Rouse after the 8.30 news. And um, news coming up with Samantha Butler. It's 8.30 and a half. Here is Sam with the Half Hour News. More than half a million people worldwide have now lost their lives as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. By far the worst affected country is the United States, with more than 125,000 deaths and a resurgence of cases. The leading Democrat Nancy Pelosi said federal rules for wearing face masks were long overdue. Mr Trump has not been seen wearing a mask in public, but Vice President Mike Pence said the president had used one. Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, one of the hardest-hit parts of the U.S. expressed concern over the surge in cases in southern and western states. If these states keep going up, we're going to have a national crisis like we have never seen. They said this was the way to help the economy by reopening. It's been the exact opposite. Every time the virus goes up, the stock market goes down. If those states continue to increase, you'll see it go all across the nation. President Trump has deleted video he shared on Twitter, which sparked widespread outrage and which some members of his own Republican Party had called offensive and indefensible. In the footage, one of the president's supporters was seen shouting white power at protesters. The party's only African-American Senator Tim Scott had been among those calling for the video to be taken down. The truth of the matter is when you hear things like that uh, r- racist chant of, uh, towards white power, we should have the same response with the same uh, type of energy that we have for those folks we've, we know have been disadvantaged for so long. We should stand up and say, that's not right. That was a terrible uh, display that I saw in, in, in that video. I watched the whole video uh, before I came on the show. The whole thing was terrible. Boeing looks set to begin test flights of its grounded 737 MAX aircraft as early as today after the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration gave its permission. The plane was removed from service 15 months ago after two crashes that killed 346 people. Here's the BBC's Katie Austin. The grounding of the 737 MAX triggered a financial crisis at Boeing and lawsuits from victims' families. The two crashes, a Lion Air flight and an Ethiopian Airlines flight, happened within five months of each other. Investigators blamed faults in the flight control system, which Boeing has been overhauling for months. To evaluate the proposed changes, a 737 MAX loaded with test equipment will run through a series of mid-air scenarios near Boeing's manufacturing base at Seattle. Even if the test flights go well, months of further safety checks will be needed. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Hugh Chivers and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. And we're going to be talking today about international reactions to the imminent national security legislation uh, in Hong Kong. The US Senate backed legislation on Thursday that would impose mandatory sanctions on individuals or companies that back the efforts by China to re- that back efforts by China to restrict Hong Kong's autonomy. The financial secretary, though, says that Hong Kong has fully prepared for potential economic sanctions. This comes 
a week after the European Parliament condemned the law as a comprehensive assault on the territory's freedoms and demanded the EU prepare sanctions. But will any action actually follow? And on Friday, around 50 special UN rapporteurs and other experts denounced, quote, the repression of protest and democracy advocacy, unquote, in Hong Kong and urged Beijing to drop the law. Why is the EU and the G7 attitude to China hardening? Will the UK actually do anything about BNO passports? Let us know your thoughts, your questions and your comments. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266, And the good news is that the email uh, is now working. I think on Friday, apparently, they they, uh, they changed the uh, password and they didn't tell anyone. <laughs> That's IT for you. Okay, so um, uh, just before we uh, get to uh, today's discussion, uh, a few of the uh, emails that have uh, that came in uh, between programmes uh, over the weekend and uh, some relating to uh, other things. Well, here's one from, from Tony who says, when your email went down last week, many decent-minded people listening really saw the real value of the programme when there was less audience input. They, unlike the administration, like to hear fresh or divergent views. It's refreshing to hear off-script views, especially when we routinely hear pro-Beijing parrot off their hymn sheet. We need emails to the show to keep the likes of Alan Zeman in check. Uh, I think we all know how to treat Zeman and vote with our feet to refuse and refuse to patronise his establishment. But it's not enough to rely on their ilk, putting their feet in their mouths. Their plain absurdities need to be checked. We simply can't have plain non-secretaires slip by and have business self-interest override the rights of people. That is, as I say, from uh, Tony. Uh, now, there was some discussion uh, from uh, Mike. There was a, 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 a sorry, from this was from uh, originally from Bowen. Uh, a comment from Bowen, which uh, elicited a response from, from Kim about um, non-Chinese people. Uh, I then pointed out that uh, the original author, Bowen, was in fact Chinese. Uh, Kim responded last week to this, uh, not surprising that Mr Bowen is a Chinese. He sounds like a defender of colonialism. We have some in Hong Kong who constantly wave the Union Jack and American flags during protests. He's entitled to his opinion, but he still cannot represent me or a million of other Hong Kong people. In the same vein, I can only represent my own views. Activists do not even manage to reach the target of getting 60,000 votes from their 16,975 anti-government union members to agree to a proposed strike to oppose the national security law for Hong Kong in their strike referendum. They only got 8,943 votes. The Chinese name of the action group is 2 million Three Strike United Front. Highly misleading. Mr Boeing can work harder at getting millions of local Hong Kongers to agree with him, but he cannot claim to represent them or know what they think. And there's a further response from Boeing, which we'll get to a little bit later perhaps Martin finally uh, says uh, finally for now uh, Hong Kong doesn't need to worry about international reactions or US sanctions to the national security legislation if it happens we are in good company as the US has just enacted sanctions against the international criminal court officials who wanted to investigate US war crimes besides there are another 388 bills and resolutions piled up against China under the 116th US Congress it will get very tiresome to respond to every bill and accusation based on phony claims by the US. The US and Europe are extremely concerned about interference in their own domestic affairs. Europeans don't like to be told off over how they handle COVID-19 or insurrection, sedition and terrorism in their own countries, uh, Northern Ireland, the Basque conflict and recently Catalonia. 
come to mind. But Western countries and its mass media hold themselves to a different standard. Perhaps they still perceive themselves as imperial power and believe that the US and Western governments, not China, have a final say in Hong Kong affairs and that the West has a veto power. Maybe that is also the reason why the US and the West try to stifle and discredit China's progress at every turn and surrounds China with 400 military bases. That comes from Martin. Thank you very much indeed for the comments. Backchat at rthk.hk. Joining us for the first part of the programme, we are joined now by Jean-Pierre Cabestan, Professor of Political Science at the Baptist University, and Benedict Rogers, the founder of Hong Kong Watch uh, in the UK. Uh, Mark Simon and uh, legal academic Sue Yadiva will be joining us after the news at nine in the second part of the programme. For the moment, uh, Professor Cabestan, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. Let's look at the perhaps the uh, the US first. Um, yep. What sort of shape do you think those sanctions are actually going to take in reality? I think in reality the sanctions uh, imposed by the Trump administration for what's happening in Hong Kong and the enactment of the national security law are likely to be rather limited. They will be, uh, as it's been announced, sanctioned against uh, leaders, against officials involved in uh, introducing this new legislation and implementing it, both from uh, Hong Kong and mainland China. But I don't see, for the moment, any sanction which will have uh, an impact on, on the economy, on the, relation, on the financial relationship between Hong Kong and the U.S., so they may be, you know, in a, in a pipeline, but I, I don't have any signal that they're going to be implemented uh, or introduced because of the side effects uh, of the of such sanctions for on, on many uh, stakeholders in Hong Kong, in particular uh, the 1,300 American companies uh, based in Hong Kong. So uh, that's the only signal we've got from the Trump administration for the moment. So some limited sanctions against official against officials. These these are, uh, officials, both in the mainland and Hong Kong, what sort of thing? Can't visit or limited yep. visit or can't can't use U.S. dollars in their wallet? What what sort of thing uh, are you talking about? I think we talk about visas and and. Uh, um, yes, possibility of going to the U.S. Uh, they, they, they've alluded to uh, comp- also to the fact that companies uh, associated with these decisions uh, may be sanctioned. But here it's very vague. Actually, we don't know exactly uh, what kind of target, you know, what kind of company they're getting to target, and for what what kind of uh, relationship with the uh, authorities and with the particularly officials we are going to introduce those. Uh, those, these new national security laws. Could Cathay Pacific maybe stopped from flying to the U.S. or HSBC? No, I don't think so. I think it's very unlikely. Uh, so we 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 have we have to wait until we get the the details of these uh, sanctions to really uh, uh, have a better idea of you know what kind of company can be can be targeted. But my my. Again, my take on this, what has been announced so far, is that the sanctions are going to be very limited. How, how does it, I can't, I've struggled with the logic of this, how does it help Hong Kong, show support for Hong Kong to keep hitting Hong Kong? Well, the, the Trump administration, uh, you know, um, had to, well, first of all, make a very critical announcement after the uh, national security law was announced. And they had to do something. Uh, they said at the end of uh, the one country, two system formula, the way we understood it in 1997. So 
So now we have to sort of adjust and adapt to this new environment. Uh, now the question is, uh, how, you know, what kind of measures you can take uh, in order to signal, you know, first of all, your, your displeasure with this new uh, national security law, but also uh, the uh, sort of uh, consequences you're drawing from, from, this new, uh, from this new legislation. Now, uh, it's, it's still very unclear, and uh, I think there may be more sanctions um, uh, down the road once we know the details of the national security law. But for the time being, again, uh, I think that it's, it's rather symbolic just to express uh, uh, the U.S. administration's position to, to the uh, this new legislation. Does the same go for the uh, EU? We've had quite strong words there, quite strong rhetoric. But do you think that's yeah. actually going to, you know, turn? Yeah, yeah the EU. I mean, uh, from the very beginning, as you know, uh, Joseph Borrell, who is the high high representative of the EU uh, for foreign affairs, uh, excluded the idea of introducing sanctions. So uh, concern has been strongly expressed by the EU Commission. Uh, you've, I'm sure you've noticed that some um, European member, members of the European Parliament have uh, pushed for introducing sanctions against uh, China, a bit similar to the sanctions you know, decided and announced by the Trump administration. But I, I don't think there is enough traction within the EU Parliament for introducing such sanctions. Now, something we have to bear in mind is, first of all, within the Parliament, I think it's still a minority who is pushing for... Uh, sanction against China regarding Hong Kong, but also, you know, the Uyghur question and human rights issues in general in China. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, at the EU level, uh, and Joseph Borrell sort of echoed that uh, concern, is the fact that uh, the EU may be very quickly divided on China. As you know, there are some member states like Hungary, but also countries like Italy, who are more keen to keep a stable and, uh, and rather close relationship with uh, China and countries who are more critical like Germany, France and others. And uh, so it means that very often the EU Commission's decision is a result of the, uh, you know, smallest common denominator among uh, member states. So that's why I think uh, the world from the outset uh, has excluded introducing any, any kind of sanctions against China because of uh, what's happening here in Hong Kong. Is, you'd still have to say, I guess, though, with with the uh, with the comments from the uh, EU, the hardening attitude, really, from yep. from the EU and from the G7. You got China, you got Japan chipping in, where it usually kind of stays out. Even ASEAN um, last week, um, you know, taking a more or less kind of hostile attitude towards China. Things aren't going China's way in the international sphere, are they? When it comes to Hong Kong. Yes, I mean, China, you, I think it was mentioned that earlier in your program is that China has uh, picked up polls with too many people, too many countries, uh, including India now and, and Vietnam. And, and, and uh, I think there's been some pushback from uh, a number of uh, countries or groups of countries like the EU. Now, in the, as far as the EU is concerned, I think there's been uh, some, uh, some um, important changes over the last uh, few months. And I think you can go back to March last year. Uh, and the uh, announcement by the EU Commission that China was a systemic rival. And uh, you know, so there, there is both cooperation you know, on some issues, but also a lot of differences and, and, and disputes on other issues, and not only trade issues, of course, but also uh, 
uh, human rights and, 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 and the way we, uh, the EU understand multilateralism and the world order. So, uh, and China has, uh, you know, quite a number of issues that sort of impose a a complete policy instead of uh, uh, sticking to international norms. Uh, if you look at the South China Sea and, uh, and uh, in particular, that's, uh, uh, I think, uh, one of those issues which uh, have uh, also uh, affected the EU policy towards China. Now, uh, of course, there is a worry in the EU that um, the Trump administration is pushing too much in favor of decoupling, uh, because that's not in the interest of the EU, and the EU is starting to is, is trying to can stand in the middle and um, and keep some you know uh, uh, positive relationship with China. But I think something has happened in the last uh, few months, and the way with the relationship between the EU and China is going to be conducted in the, in the future will be quite different, and uh, it will be much more uh, realistic, uh, less, na less naive, may maybe, you know, has been mentioned. Yes. And um, so uh, I think on every issue there will be much more negotiation and much more sort of pragmatic. They want attitude. to see some actual results on intellectual property and investment and so on. Well, not, that's the not thing. Not just sweet you know, words. Yes, I mean, that's the thing, you know, the, the Chinese administration government, you know, including Li Keqiang and, and others and, and, and in, in meetings have made a lot of promises to the EU and without the results. So the EU has been uh, rather, you know, very disappointed about the, the lack of results. Only one of the issues has been the negotiation of the uh, comprehensive uh, investment agreement. And there is no, in terms of access market, you know, uh, the end of subsidies to uh, state-owned enterprises. There's been no result, so there is no, you know, there is no way for the for the for the uh, for both sides to agree uh, on such an agreement or other agreements uh, regarding uh, intellectual property if if there are no concessions made on the Chinese side. So that's where we are now, and that's why I think the relationship is, is stuck in, a, in the middle. Of the all right, but Benedict Rogers, uh, good day to you. Thanks for, for joining us on, on, on the line from the UK, I think. Um, uh, what's your take on this? Do you think this the situation is, as, as Professor Kabistan said, uh, really there's going to be, you know, this is, a lot of this is, is kind of symbolic. And when it comes to the BNO and uh, what Boris Johnson has uh, said about the possibility, you know, of extending citizenship to um, Hong Kongers uh, in, in the UK, that's not actually going to turn into reality. I, I disagree with uh, that last part, although I agree with much of, of what was said about uh, the sanctions. But in a way, I actually really welcome the fact that the sanctions being proposed, in so far as what we know of them uh, uh, at the moment, um, are carefully targeted. And, and that's, in my view, incredibly important. You, you raised the question, how do you help by Hong Kong by, by hurting Hong Kong? Well, I think the aim of these sanctions is to avoid hurting Hong Kong people, Hong Kong businesses, and to really target uh, officials in government, both in Hong Kong and, and Beijing, and, and entities closely associated with them. So if that's the aim and the principle, um, I really welcome that. Uh, on the BNO question, um, I, I'm extremely uh, pleased that uh, Boris Johnson uh, made uh, the offer he made. Um, it was quite a long time coming. It was arguably rather late in the day, but, uh, but I think uh, better late than, than never. Um, there are, of course, a lot of details that we're pushing in London for about how the program will work, what the 
a pathway to citizenship that uh, the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has, has spoken of. Uh, and so, so a lot of details that still need to be answered. But I think the principle sends both a, a message of some reassurance to VNOs in Hong Kong that if things really uh, deteriorate significantly, um, the, the, there is a way for them to, uh, to leave to, to a place of safety. Uh, and it sends a, a strong message to Beijing that what's being proposed is, is not acceptable. However, I also think that what Boris Johnson has proposed is, of course, not enough, because there will be many uh, Hong Kongers, particularly young political activists, who could well be in grave danger under the new security law, who are not VNOs. And that's why I've also been arguing for uh, a sort of lifeboat uh, scheme coordinated by a, a number of different like-minded countries together, which should only be a last resort. We, we should be working uh, to, to avoid that being necessary, but I think that ought to be prepared so that if people need to get out urgently, they, they have a place what, of sanctuary to why, go to. Why these half measures? Why not do what Portugal did in Macau and just give every citizen at that time uh, a full passport? An EU passport, which is what Portugal did. Why, why, didn't, why didn't Britain do the same? Well, I, I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for that view. Uh, um, I suppose the answer to that is obviously the, the numbers are much uh, bigger. The attitudes towards immigration in the UK, uh, and certainly now, are, are much more conservative. That, that said, actually, opinion polls in the UK show that whilst uh, general views on, on immigration levels as a whole, are, are very small-c conservative. Um, actually, there's huge support uh, for helping uh, BNOs and, and, and Hong Kongers. Um, but you're right to ask that question. There, there are many things that Britain has failed to do uh, all these years, um, both to, to help Hong Kongers uh, at the time of the handover in the way that Portugal did, uh, and indeed to speak up uh, against the, the erosion of Hong Kong's autonomy in, in the various ways that that's happened over recent years. And it's, it's very tragic that it's taken this security law to get the British government to finally um, do what it should. Well, of course, and going back to the original changes to the British, British Nationality Act in the early 1980s, uh, Hong Kong's huge number of different-looking people were actually the main target of those changes. Yes, ab absolutely. Um, uh, no, I mean, there were, there were certainly many, many things that Britain uh, should have done uh, and, and should have done right by Hong Kongers that, uh, that, that we failed to do in the past. You see, see I, I'm not a BNO. If I were a BNO and I sort of, would I go to Canada or Australia or the US um, and, and apply to emigrate there? Or would I go to the UK with maybe five years of if I could get a job or if I could get a place in to study, then maybe there is a, 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 there is a path, but I may not complete the path. So it's, it's not well, worth as much as emigration to somewhere else. That's right. I mean, my, my view is it's uh, a lot better than, uh, than nothing and a lot better than where the British government was uh, not, a very, uh, short, uh, not, not a very long time ago. Um, but it's certainly far from perfect, and, and that's why we're pressing the government here in the UK for a lot more detail about what is this pathway and, and how will it work, because Hong Kongers are going to need 
to know that before um, they decide whether to, to come here or I, not. I don't exactly know exactly so what sort of questions were asked in that the, the sort of surveys that you re, you refer to. But um, looking at a lot of reaction in the press, it seems to be uh, generally, well, yeah, we're kind of sympathetic towards the people in Hong Kong, but really there's no way, we're given the current economic crisis uh, in the UK, given the mood about immigration, there is absolutely no way that we're going to allow three million people from Hong Kong to come to the UK. That's just not going to happen. Well, there may, that may be true, and, and certainly the three million figure um, is, is a very different figure from, from, the, from, from the number of people who actually have BNO passport holders. Um, but nevertheless, I think there is also a view in the UK that, um, that Hong, Hong Kong people, as a generalization, um, are, are extremely dynamic, entrepreneurial uh, people, often not all of them, but, but many of them with, with a certain amount of wealth. And, and I think there is an argument developing in the UK that actually, if they come to the UK, you know, unlike perhaps refugees from other parts of the world through no fault of their own, um, Hong Kongers are not going to be a burden on the UK. On, on the contrary, actually, will inject uh, some urgently needed uh, entrepreneurialism, start businesses, uh, often perhaps fill jobs that uh, we may have. We, we may be needing skills that we've lost because of Brexit, because of uh, uh, other economic factors. So I think there's a general attitude in the UK that um, Hong Kongers who come to the UK will. Will have a lot to contribute, and we have a duty to help them as well. Those those things are just as true in 2020, and they were also true in 1981. Well, I, I agree. Um, I, I I'm not here to defend the British government. I'm I'm here to push the British government to do uh, what they should do and and, and more. So um, I don't argue with that at all. The lifeboat for non-BNO ones is interesting. Um, that's relatively new. Can you tell us a bit more about your thinking on that? Yes. I mean, the, the idea that's being developed is that um, there should be an international contact group of like-minded countries, perhaps the, some of the countries we've been talking about, the UK, Australia, Canada, the United States, maybe some European countries. Um, uh, the idea has also been talked about as to whether the Commonwealth could be involved, but realistically that would be in the form, I think, of Australia, Canada and New Zealand, most likely. Um, but those, those countries to coordinate together uh, a, a scheme that uh, allows people who, who urgently need to leave Hong Kong because they're in grave danger um, to get out fast to uh, come to one of those countries. Of course, the detail of that still needs to be worked out. I mean, the principle hasn't even been agreed yet by countries. It's, it's something that, that I'm pushing. Um, but it might be something similar to the kind of uh, scheme that was uh, deployed for, um, for Uganda during Idi Amin's uh, rule, um, or, or indeed more recently for, for, for refugees from the Middle East, where countries had to work together to, to share responsibility. I, I think the point of the lifeboat scheme is that if, if large numbers of people from Hong Kong needed to get out, no one country is likely to be able to take them all. So I, we need I think, to coordinate I think, together. Yeah, I think there's still a lot of people, that, well, there's some people in Hong Kong who will say, I mean, setting aside the kind of rank hypocrisy of the United States and the UK, you know, telling other countries how to, how to, uh, how to run their affairs when, you know, they're not, 
you know, models of anything very much, uh, given their history and given their current attitudes and current attitudes to the ICC and, 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 and so on. It's just also, it's not up to you. It's not up to the UK. It's not to the U, uh, up to the US to tell Hong Kong and its sovereign power how to run its own affairs. Well, actually, I, I disagree very strongly with that because uh, Britain in particular is, of course, the, the co-signatory with China to the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which is still valid until 2047 and which uh, promises Hong Kong's freedoms, way of life uh, and high degree of autonomy uh, under one country, two systems. And I think the, the reason there's been such an international outcry at the proposed security law even though we don't yet know all the details, but what we know of it uh, and the way it's being imposed on Hong Kong, not through LegCo, but, but through the MPC, uh, is that uh, it, it's a flagrant violation of that internationally, international treaty registered at the United Nations. Um, and so actually as a signatory to that, we have a responsibility to speak out. And then other countries like the United States, or taking into account the criticisms of them, um, that you've made about the ICC and, and on other levels, which I agree with. Um, but nevertheless, the United States and others uh, have a responsibility to uphold the international rules-based order. And if China is allowed to just flout a, a, a treaty that it signed, um, how can we take their, their promises on other treaties uh, seriously? Same applies to the USA, surely. It's driven a coat and horses through international agreements in the last three years. Well, I, I, I agree, uh, but but, but uh, two, two, two wrongs don't make a right. So that so I mean, you're right to criticise the United States, but that doesn't shouldn't let China off the hook in this particular instance. Okay. Well, Benedict Rogers, thank you very much indeed for joining us, founder of Hong Kong Watch. Thank you to Professor Cambastan, Jean-Pierre Cambastan, uh, Professor of Political Science at the Baptist University, Mark Simon from uh, Next Media, and uh, also uh, Surya Deva, who's a legal academic and one of those UN rapporteurs I mentioned in the introduction, will be joining us after the news at nine. We want to hear from you as well. Email backchat at rthk.hk, now that that's working, or call us on 233-88266. We'll put you on air. Or you can comment, of course, on our Facebook page. That's backchat on rthk radio 3 the weather before the news hot with sunny periods and a couple of showers temperatures up to 32 degrees the outlook hot with sunny periods and a couple of showers in the next couple of days 29 degrees now humidity 81 percent security legislation uh which is coming very very soon uh we were talking in the first part of the program a little bit about uh, the situation in the u.s the eu and also the uk uh and uh we will be talking about uh yeah, uh, further about uh, uh, those aspects and also about the uh, UN uh, with uh, uh, Surya Deva, legal academic and one of the rapporteurs of a, uh, one of the authors of a UN uh, report. Uh, and uh, also Mark Simon uh, joins us now for our next media uh, employee. Um, just before we get to some reaction to the first part of the program this morning, this is from Bowen uh, responding to uh, taking up uh, that uh, discussion with uh, Kim. Um, uh, Bowen says, uh, my thanks to listener Mike for his response to last Wednesday's back chat to Kim's emotive harangue and misconceived attacks on my previous message. I will amplify slightly on my analysis of the two social contracts in Hong Kong before and after the handover. A huge wave of, wave of refugees who fled the mainland in the last century to come to Hong Kong up to 1950 were quite mixed in terms of socio-economic status, including a great share of wealthy and middle-class people who saw Hong Kong initially as a 
safe haven and later as a means of escape from living under communist rule. It's true that the contributors are considerably smaller but still sizable number of those who came here from the early 60s to the 80s came for reasons ranging from escaping famine to looking for a better life. But better economic prospects then, as well as freedom from political persecution, could not be separated from political freedom, including that of occupation. Pursuing their goal of living in safety and relative freedom with a consequently broader choice of career opportunities, they embraced the previous social contract I mentioned, living not as masters in their own house, but enjoying good governance and a good measure of freedom. It would not make sense for them or their descendants to agree to revert to living under totalitarian rule numerous decades after they had succeeded in escaping from it. From a sociological as well as historical point of view, therefore, the only rationale which could explain these people's willingness to stay in Hong Kong after 97 was the terms of the joint declaration and the basic law being honoured and their rights and freedoms being maintained. Hence my analysis of the new social contract, or at least a major core component of it, after the handover, meaning one under which the authorities would abide by the terms of the said legally binding documents and the locals would would remain as civil and cooperative as before, based on their totally reasonable expectation and assumption of that duty being performed by the authorities. That comes from Bowen. Uh, Reaction to uh, a discussion in the first part of the programme this morning. LK says, Benedict Rogers says in Britain there is huge, quote, huge support for BNOs. Uh, Where was the lifeboat scheme for other former colonies of the British Empire? Where is the duty to help in those cases? Sierra Leone, Nigeria, Bangladesh, too many to list. Plenty of dynamic entrepreneurial people in those countries too. Interesting that Rogers repeats the classist view that wealthy immigrants contribute more than poorer ones. This has been completely debunked by economists. And the pandemic has in fact shown the opposite. Frontline workers, many of them poorly paid, have ensured the NHS remained functioning and that food remained on the shelves of British supermarkets. That comes from uh, LK. Uh, Andrew Kay says, seriously, you are interviewing a UK politician? Life is too short for that. And uh, Anna says, why would Hong Kong people want to go to the UK? My daughter, who's Hong Kong Chinese, lives in the UK and now gets racist attacks everywhere, from the neighbours to work, the doctor's surgery to the supermarket queue. That comes uh, from Anna. Thank you very much indeed for that. Backchat at rthk.hk is our our, uh, email address if you want to uh, contribute. Or as I say, you can go to our Facebook page. Uh, uh, We're joined, as I say, by um, Suya Diva now, Associate Professor at City University of Hong Kong School of law and a member of that UN working group on on business and uh, human rights. Uh, so yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for for joining good us morning, once Hugh. again. T- tell us about this uh, about this um, uh, 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 report, this uh, communication from the independent experts. You being one of them, uh, what did you say? What what was the comment, especially when it comes to Hong Kong? Thanks, you. Uh, I would like to first explain a little bit the context that what the independent experts do. So we are appointed by the Human Rights Council. We are not UN employees. And we focus uh, on different uh, thematic issues. So we issue such statements uh, not just for China, just just to want to make it clear that this is nothing to do with that we are anti-Chinese or anything like this. We have issued statements uh, in the recent month, in the month of June itself, in fact, about Israel. A major statement about Israel, we have issued a statement about U.S., uh, including the International Criminal Court sanctions that they're proposing. We have issued a statement about Philippines. So what I'm trying to highlight is that we have the mandate to look at the human rights situation anywhere in the world. We are not political. We are independent, objective, and we issue such statements uh, to basically show mirror to the governments. 
and to the UN agencies and what they should be doing. I think this statement uh, is unprecedented for a number of reasons. First, the number of experts that have joined the statement. So we have about uh, 80 experts uh, from the UN system and uh, 51 experts joined this statement. So if you look at the number, this is a huge number. I, I do not recall any statement uh, against China uh, getting so many experts joining together. Second, this is unprecedented because this statement is not focusing merely on China, merely on Hong Kong. Rather, it sees uh, the fear in Hong Kong as part of the systemic uh, violations of human rights within mainland China for many, many years. So we have issued statements in the past about Xinjiang, the issues about uh, human rights defenders and lawyers being arrested and prosecuted uh, on the critics of national security. So we have serious concerns that the same thing may happen in Hong Kong as well. And I think it is unprecedented, thirdly, because of the measures we are demanding. So we have demanded, the experts have demanded three things in this particular statement. First, there should be a special session of the Human Rights Council to discuss these violations within China. Second, uh, the Human Rights Council should appoint an independent special rapporteur or something like that to monitor and analyze and report annually to the situation because we don't feel confident that the legal system in mainland China or the political system within mainland China or even within Hong Kong, as per the law that is being proposed, there will be enough safeguards to protect human rights. And thirdly, we are demanding that all countries and all UN agencies in their dialogues, when they are having any that kind of dialogues with China, they should raise the issues of its human rights obligations under international law. So these are uh, three measures we are demanding. And it, it is for the council to, um, to, to follow on these calls. But basically our job is to highlight these concerns and I think the language that we have used, the number of mandates that have joined, shows that this is really very, very uh, urgent situation uh, right. for the whole Hong Kong, but including um, China as such as well. Uh, good morning. Can I can I ask? Have you seen anything anywhere in the world where a, a law is discussed and debated behind closed doors in this way and not shown to the people to whom it will apply? I can't be very confident, but it, it is very unprecedented. And I think in our statement, we mentioned that, that if you're trying to do a law like this, there, is, there should be meaningful consultation with the people of Hong Kong, because ultimately you, ask, you expect people of Hong Kong to follow this legislation, and we mentioned that. So I think that is uh, very, very, I would say it's unreasonable even under the Chinese law. Forget about the Hong Kong law and the Hong Kong basic law. So what, uh, keeping it so secret, that even the chief executive is claiming publicly that she has not seen complete draft is definitely uh, very, very serious. Well, yeah, yes, the chief executive and the chief secretary have both said the, the new law has their complete support, but neither of them have seen it. That, yeah, they're, they're, they're signing a blank check, basically. That seems... I mean, I, I would say their credibility has been pretty damaged even before that, but whatever was I, left has just disappeared. I don't think uh, the Hong Kong government uh, has any credibility left, and that's why the statement is very clear on this point that we would like some independent mechanism to monitor what happens after the law comes into place. Because if you have 
the chief executive creating a pool of judges to hear these cases and we do not know what will be the conviction rate what will be the human rights protections available so we have serious concerns about that going forward but you know that every country in the world has national security legislation. We don't have national security legislation in Hong Kong. We need national security legislation. And this is what this is the form it's going to take. I think we do not, uh, we do not question that relevance of national security. I think it's a legitimate concern for each and every country, including China. So we have nothing against national security. We are also not against the idea of law as such. If China or Hong Kong government together or on their own, they would like to do a law to protect national security, that is a legitimate concern. But the way this law is being drafted and uh, no consultation with the people of Hong Kong and uh, the lack of safeguards, I think that is the real concern for us. Okay. Uh, Mark Simon, good morning to you and thank you for, for, for joining us today. Um, Jean-Pierre Capistan was saying in the first part of the programme that the sanctions announced by the U, um, US probably won't amount to very much. It's largely symbolic. Do you, do you agree with that? No. Okay, what's, what is it going to be? Pad, pad that out a little bit, Mark. <laughs> Mark, could you could you get a little closer to the, to the phone? Sorry, we can't. You, yeah, that, that's better. That, that's ridiculous. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's kind of a pansy view of things. Essentially, the U.S. is basically taking the position, and it's a pretty clear one. You, you know, you do A, we do B. You do A, we do B. The U.S. is not doing anything. Essentially, China's doing this. <coughs> China changes the relationship. Hong Kong has a special economic status with the United States based on a number of things. That is not going to change until China changes it. And as China introduces the legislation, then we'll start seeing things happen. If China locks people up, we'll see more things happen. There is a basic belief in the U.S., and I share it, that basically trashing the special economic relationship is probably not the best thing to do up front. But there is no way that it's going to continue on as it is. There is not going to be constantly people being rounded up in the streets, okay, like they did in Mongkok yesterday. I mean, if Chris Tang, the police chief of police, thinks he can keep doing that and travel the world, he's got another thing coming. The fact of the matter is it just takes a while. One of the mistakes that I've constantly seen in the Democratic movement is essentially, no offense to all the lawyers, is they talk and then they expect things to happen. Foreign policy basically happens on actions. And so once China starts acting, then we'll start seeing things. And it'll be a steady ramping up. The only, there's actually a belief that somehow under a Biden administration, oh, it'll be back to normal and everything will be okay. I just don't see it. The world has changed. Uh, the horses left the barn on China in terms of uh, Xi Jinping wearing the black hat. So it's just going to be a series. It's not going to happen all at once, and it shouldn't happen all at once. I mean, you know, uh, there is not an ability in Hong Kong. The U.S. Congress doesn't work for Hong Kong democracy activists. I'll give you an example that was laid out to me the other day by a State Department official. The special economic relationship we have with our passports is based on Hong Kong being autonomous. If we declare that Hong Kong is just part of China, well, 
those passports that we that, that are issued will become just like Chinese passports. And to avoid that, you don't want to have to jump into that right away. So you want to make moves along those lines. But I'm sorry, I don't, I, I don't think that people are going to, you know, the people I find who say it won't be much tend to be unrealistic and, and you know, basically also what I say, playing their own cards. In other words, they, they don't want it to be bad. You're saying it won't, be, it won't be bad quickly, but it will be bad. It will get ramped up as time goes by if China does things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and I think that's the way it should be. I don't know. I mean, basically, we have this special economic relationship. People have to look at that. It's not the U.S. that's doing things. It's China that's doing things. So every time China takes an action, well, why would the U.S.? let them continue to have a special economic relationship if all of a sudden it doesn't mean that we're dealing with anybody. For example, right now we've got the chief of police um, in Hong Kong. He's regarded by most people in the U.S. as a functionary for China. Why would we have information sharing agreements with them anymore? Why would, why would Hong Kong get special customs privileges? Um, why would Hong Kong be exempted from certain money laundering or certain transfers if we don't have confidence. But you have to let them fail first. In other words, this idea that you go out and smack them around because the Chinese are indignant enough to do something. I mean, actually, I agree with you. National security law is probably pretty standard and is actually pretty standard, but not this one. So quickly before somebody quotes me, no, not this one. This is, this is done a little bit differently. And uh, the other thing, too, Mike, I think it's almost impossible to now separate Hong Kong from the overall relationship China has with uh, the world. The former, Guardo is his name, I think, the Mexican ambassador to China, the former ambassador, he made a great comment the other day. He said, actually, he finds the U.S.-China back and forth to be a little boring and predictable. What's happening with China every place else, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, Europe, um, even in Germany now, you know, who are their notorious doormats for China, even there it's starting to pick up. And, and I think, I think this will happen more and more as China takes action. And that's why I think we haven't seen um, the public debate about what's going on, because they're trying to gauge when they make this law how bad it's going to be. And I, I, I always have the feeling myself um, that I'm not really, I'm more worried about people in Hong Kong, the pro-government people in Hong Kong using China to protect themselves rather than China acting up. I mean, the only reason in my mind we're seeing all these problems is because of the incompetency of the Hong Kong government in so many ways. Mm. And so... But we are we are going to see we are going to see it's going to be a steady flow of things and it won't happen in two months three months six months it'll be it'll be over the next I mean Hong Kong will just slowly become less and less special to the, mm-hmm. at some point in time. You'll put the, but, but again but again is this is this really up to you? You said that Chris Tang couldn't expect to travel the world uh, with impunity. Yeah, why well, not? well, it's not up to the United States whether Chris Tang sure travels the travels the world. Sure it is. If he's a human rights violator, then we can go after him. Well, you can it's deny him entry to the USA. Or take him to the international. No, you can ICC. also, you can also pick him, you can, we, They can also pick him up in other places too. If he's a human rights, <laughs> a human rights violator, is a human rights violator. If you can't use you the ICC against him, you're demolishing the ICC. No, but not, 
Well, I see the International Criminal Court. You don't need that. He can come to U.S. courts or he can go to other places. I don't think, I think this is the whole point. I think there's a huge misunderstanding on the part of the Hong Kong government about the sanctions that they're going to face. And even on a practical level, Mike, do you really think the Hong Kong police chief, after what's going on, do you think he's going to go to the uh, police chief's convention, you know, outside of any repressive regime and have a nice conversation or give a speech? I mean, in other words, they're, they're putting themselves in this box. You, you, you've you emphasized know. the things that China has done, but at the same time, the U.S. did take the initiative to slap tariffs on Chinese products, to ban technology export, bought sure, exports, that's right. that's and to that's stop, stop things coming that's in. That's, that's and you know what? And, and China, China came in and they signed an agreement on it. There's agreements. There's, there's tariffs and things like that. Are, you know, that's, that's apples and oranges. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that this is a separate freestanding agreement, and that's, that's the way it's going to be. I mean, one of the things that actually the pro-China people want, and I think, it's, I think it's awful, is people like Richard Haas of the Council of Foreign Relations, who really would just like this to go away, they would like to see the special economic relationship with Hong Kong canceled. And the reason why is they want to move this to a different status. In other words, just finish Hong Kong off now, take it off the map, make it a refugee issue so it becomes like the Uyghurs or Tibet or something else, and then have the overall relationship with China develop. I mean, there are, there are a lot of different views. Well, not really. There's a few different views on on how, how to proceed. But I, I think the idea that um, the idea that somehow the U.S. can't put tariffs, that, you know, putting tariffs on Chinese goods or asking the Chinese not to steal our technology, and that relates to human rights in Hong Kong, I, I don't know if I can make that connection. That, that, that doesn't seem to stand up to me. So, Yadiva, are you worried that uh, people like you are getting caught Basically, in what is uh, a trade is fundamentally an economic uh, and geopolitical battle between China and the United States. No, I mean uh, trade is of course important, and I think it should continue. But I think uh, what is crucial is trade should be uh, principle based, and the human rights should be a critical component of trade negotiations, not just between just China and the U.S., but throughout. So as uh, UN experts, we would like to encourage all countries uh, not to put uh, human rights on the back burner when they are negotiating trade agreements. And I think that is what uh, we, we also request all the countries and uh, other agencies to, to keep in mind going forward. You know? So if you are, let us say, European Union, if European Union is negotiating a trade agreement with China, we would like the human rights considerations and factors to be on the table sitting with trade rather than that is taking a back seat. So I think that is uh, a principled position we take uh, and it's not unique uh, to China that we will say it. We will say it uh, in relation to all the countries. Mark, can I ask uh, where you're based now? I know you're on a more distant phone line than, than uh, Mr. Sarayad. I, I was in Hong Kong up until I was in Hong Kong up until uh, uh, late April. I, I'm, Mike, I'm only really in Hong Kong the last few years. I'm only in Hong Kong about five months a year right. because I do a lot in Taiwan, and then I also have the businesses in the U.S. So the problem I'm having, to be honest with you, is COVID like everybody else. Um, I have a 650-square-foot apartment in Hong Kong, and <laughs> 14 days in there, 
you know, I think uh, I, I, I think I'll be, you know, growing a beard and look like I'm from the movie Castaway. So you, it's, you'd uh, be better I'm, off in Taiwan than the U.S. from that perspective. Well, to, to be honest with you, I also have a very nice place in Taiwan. I stay with a big yard and all those things. So I'll be back in Taiwan probably the week after next. Um, you know, it's just, but it it is an amazing thing. I mean, I, I will say also this in regards to Hong Kong and China. It has been amazing to me how COVID has really, you know, wreaked havoc on diplomatic relations, you know, the lack of face-to-faces, the lack of meetings. That that meeting they had with Yang was kind of, you know, put together and everybody's washing hands and, you know, going through things. So I, I think in my mind, you know, what we'll see in the coming months, um, hopefully as we return to a little bit more normal, you know, we'll, we'll see some dialogue. But you know, Hugh, you did say something about, like, economic clash and, you know, uh, a geopolitical. I, I view it a little bit differently. I think there's always an economic argument, economic fight. But I think, actually, it you know, basically, you know, the U.S. and China were working around. They were having fights, but it wasn't the end of the world. I think, really, it's a clash of values. And I think that values clash has started with Xi Jinping deciding to come out and say, our system is morally equal to your system, and we're going to start pushing that system around the world. And, and that's why I found the, Me- the former Mexican ambassador's co- comments so interesting. In other words, you know, you've got down Australia, you've got, you've got in, in, in Canada, where I do, I'm quite often in Canada, and I do a lot of business there. You know, you've got two guys being held, and the Canadian government is really in having a difficult time because people in Canada are going, hold on one second, this is we got guys being held hostage by our, our largest trade partner. So I, I actually think that for good or bad, Hong Kong is somewhat, you know, uh, has been the canary in the coal mine for this, and, and we're going to see it move forward. We're going to see these things happen. And, you know, if the Chinese make what I think would be a mistake, and, uh, like, you know, my boss is probably going to put him in jail, Jimmy, um, Joshua was probably going to go. Um, but, if, you know, all of a sudden we start having 100, 200 political prisoners in Hong Kong. I mean, Mike knows this better than anybody else. Can Hong Kong still be Hong Kong when you've got a couple hundred political prisoners in jail? Can you really be an international city? You know, does that really happen for you? Can you really be the Hong Kong that everybody in the world loves? Does I'm you, not just, so sure that happens. Does, does your boss, does Jimmy Lai expect to go to jail? Oh, yeah, that's the He's pretty open about that, on that, you know. Um, so, you know, it's, it's I mean, it, it's an expectation. He's basically, you know, the last bail hearing, people always wondered why we did that. We did that because the first bail hearing we found, I thought was ridiculous. We thought it was ridiculous. But they gave us the option to come back. So he went back into the second bail hearing knowing that, you know, with increased charges, it would be less likely. But the last thing you want them to do, because they were doing it, is they're telling people, oh, he can leave, he's just not appealing. So you had to appeal it to basically get him to shut you down. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he can't leave. All right, so some, some comment from listeners. TC, this is from Facebook, there's, but there's quite a lot of uh, comments, so you can see them all at your own leisure. Here's uh, a taster. Uh, TC says, again, the Hong Kong Autonomy Act is an internal affair of the USA. The U.S. government has the right to legislate who is or isn't allowed to operate in its territory. The NPCSC and the SCR government can ignore this and continue with the NSL. The current attitude of the West towards China is rather similar to 12 months ago, where much of the diplomatic community 
community in Hong Kong were concerned about the Fugitive Offenders Bill. There's legitimate concerns that uh, Beijing would arrest foreign citizens and be used as hostages in diplomatic negotiations. Likewise, the Standing Committee or the Hong Kong government is free to enact the George Floyd Human Rights Act and place sanctions on any American federal or state officials who infringe on the human rights of African Americans. Darren says it's good to hear you have some of the foreign influence on the show today. Looking forward to hearing if they are going to be balanced or biased. Darren also says, how about the US Patriot Act? Tom says, I've stopped leaving messages here so everyone can unite in telling each other how unfair it all is without ever proposing solutions. It's revealing that in 12 months of protest, the US has never once proposed a peace solution. Uh, Darren says, I may be wrong. Wasn't there something in the joint declaration about BNOs not being allowed to come and live in Britain? Parliament uh, ultimately refused to grant all Hong Kongers right of abode uh, in the UK, citing difficulty in absorbing a large number of new citizens, and doing so would contradict the uh, the joint declaration. Uh, Lamwood RD says, we are going to open a bottle of bubbly when the national security law is passed. Bye-bye, spies. Go on now, walk out the door. Just turn around now, because you're not welcome anymore. That comes from... Uh, it sounds Lamwood, familiar. It's uh, a song, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. It's, uh, yes. I <laughs> uh, will survive. Uh, uh, Andrew Kay says, another bad guest day. Two in one day. Now a human rights person. Seriously? I think the UN is the most corrupt and ineffective organisation in the history of the world. Uh, thanks very much indeed for, for those uh, comments. Uh, uh, and, uh, yeah, we'll just finish off perhaps with this one from, from uh, Andrew F. For relating to a discussion uh, last week uh, with uh, Carol Peterson, Professor Peterson, talking about independence movements. Uh, Andrew F. says, to Professor Peterson's point, it wasn't just a home state of Hawaii that had a separatist movement lobbying for independence. It's also California, which being in its own right the seventh largest economy would obviously in the world would obviously be a major blow to the U.S. should independence be achieved. But as far as I'm aware, both these protest movements have been completely domestic in nature. I'm not aware, for example, of senior government officials from either of these states flying to Beijing to meet with senior government officials there and plead their case before the CPCC for economic sanctions to be placed against America. I'm also not aware of senior Chinese officials then flying to Hawaii and California to meet with leaders of their independence movements, walking the streets with them while giving the press conferences on the ground. They're pledging support for their cause and promising punitive action if it wasn't met. Or if these things were to happen, I've no doubt Donald Trump would welcome them as a beautiful display of freedom and a world not even dreamt of dusting off his own plethora of national security legislation. But perhaps I missed all this and Professor Peterson can set me straight. That comes from uh, Andrew F. Thank you very much indeed to our guests this morning. To uh, Suya Diva, Associate Professor in the City University School of Law and also a member of the UN Working Group on Business and uh, Human Rights. And uh, Mark Simon, uh, a Next Media columnist. Uh, thank you both very much indeed for uh, joining us this morning. And uh, Mike, many thanks to you. All the world's uh, issues today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we will see... Uh, uh, in due course, I guess, uh, what the uh, reality is of the uh, of the actual uh, legislation, which is uh, yeah, uh, uh, which is forthcoming uh, very very soon. We have uh, the weather forecast before we go today: hot, sunny periods and a couple of showers. Temperatures up to about thirty two degrees, and the outlook is going to be hot with sunny periods and a couple of showers in the next couple of days, and more showers in the latter part. Of the week, 30 degrees at the moment with a relative humidity now of 78%. To prevent pneumonia and respiratory tract infection, always keep hands clean and wash hands for at least 20 seconds. Put the lid down before flushing. Add water to U-traps regularly. 
Cover your mouth and nose with a tissue when sneezing or coughing. Wear a mask and seek medical advice promptly if unwell. Fully cover your nose, mouth, and chin with a mask. Visit chp.gov.hk to learn more. 932, the news now with Samantha Butler. More than half a million people worldwide have now lost their lives as a result of the coronavirus pandemic. By far the worst affected country is the United States, with more than 125,000 deaths and a resurgence of cases. The Philippine Coast Guard is searching for 14 people missing since a fishing boat and a cargo vessel collided in choppy waters in the early hours of yesterday morning. It wasn't immediately clear if the fishing boat sank and the search for its occupants was being hampered by strong waves. And President Trump has deleted video he shared on Twitter which sparked widespread outrage and which some members of his own Republican Party had called offensive and indefensible. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, interpreter of Beethoven, as well as also shy, quiet and retiring doggy council, co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. The sign of what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning. And welcome to Monday. It's The Morning Brew once again with me, Phil Whelan. Is real life rugby back? Well, we're going to find out at 10.10 with the CEO of Hong Kong Rugby, our mate, Robbie McRobbie. 10.40 and New York correspondent Tracy Kwan is going to be with us for several reasons. She wrote to me this morning, people have gone crazy. We'll find out what they are. I was going to be talking about statues with an academic after 11 o'clock, but the poor guy's got some emergency he needs to deal with. We'll be doing that in a few days' time. I'll tell you more. After 11.30, James Ross brings you the first of another Music of My Life, his mini-series. People really dug that last time. This one, he's with Clark Datchler from the 80s band Johnny Hates Jazz. And they, of course, had huge hits like Shattered Dreams and I Don't Want to Be a Hero. Clark's going to be picking out some of his favourite songs for us every day this week, 11 or 11.30, as the week goes on. And after 12, we're going to talk about COVID-inspired music with renowned Belgian composer and saxophone player Joachim Badenhurst. Well, he's been stuck in Japan for the past few months, so he's had plenty of time to create and produce a brand new album. It's called Japanese Corona. I think we'll be able to talk on Skype and Facebook Live. That's pretty much it for today's programme. 25 minutes to 10.